Friedrich, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, or Charles Jenkins, Ralph Steeds, and Sarah Oswald. Get ready for 30 great minutes. In the past four decades, the practice and face of higher education has changed. For much of the 1970s, men vastly outnumbered women in the ranks of college students. In some years, as much as 58% to 42%. The ratios were even more acutely different when it came to STEM or science fields. Today, over 2 million more women than men are enrolled. And by 2026, the ratio may tilt to as much as 58% female. Some universities are launching studies and developing programs to recruit more male students and are pondering pathways to create viable male education role models for male underclassmen. In part, this is a reflection of the current environment, which documents that men are less likely to enroll, more likely to drop out, and less likely to graduate. But this is far from the only change in higher education. Back in the day, universities printed multi-page course schedules in distributed carbon copy forms so students could wait in physical lines in order to register for their classes. Even when computers came, punch cards, mainframes, and other museum-quality blasts from the past were the daily grind for students who simply wanted to get in a class. Professors received paper copies of roles and duplicated course materials, sometimes known as dittos, and is likely to feature blue ink as black. The professoriate produced syllabi with risograph machines, making the absent-minded professor someone likely to be wearing a series of ink-stained splotches across their fashion-forward ensemble. They posted grades by student name outside their office or outside the classroom where they often delivered instruction with lectures and chalkboards, not PowerPoint, or by directing students to go to the electronic textbook app. Majors like decision sciences, geo-environmental sciences, gender studies, or birth to kindergarten education either didn't yet exist or were still on the drawing board. While some would call for a return to the basics of higher education experiences grounded in the trivium or some other classical notion, many other developments are unquestionably better. Affirmative action provided opportunities to assist groups of students who had been historically marginalized in the admissions or acceptance process. Diversity became a core value of higher education as an appreciation for other cultures replaced an early 20th century preference for racial, class, religious, or even gender exclusivity. Adult learners now populate many universities, providing opportunities previously reserved for students in a specific age demographic. The digital world provides an avalanche of scholarship and research materials, helping students gather resources at the stroke of a key rather than finger-flipping through a massive piece of furniture called a card catalog. And here in southeastern North Carolina, the changes are equally palpable. UNC Pembroke is now replete with buildings that three or four decades ago were not even thought of. A school of two or 3,000 students is now well over 7,000 and climbing. Faculty and students alike walk from building to building carrying laptops, computers, tablets, and phones, all while chugging down iced coffees. 
Three or four decades earlier, faculty in their own offices didn't always have their own telephones. Our topic for today are the changes in higher education and the changes right here at UNC Pembroke. Joining me today are Charles Jenkins, professor of education and former provost and chancellor, Ralph Steeds, retired art professor and renowned printmaker, and Sarah Oswald from the Department of English, Theater, and Foreign Languages, who knows everything about college yearbooks you could ever want to know. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, what year did y'all start at the university? What were your recollections of campus life, the classes you taught? Uh, tell us about what it was like when you started. Well, I came in January of 1971. And of course, uh, we were the name of the university at that time was Pembroke State University. Just three years earlier, it named Pembroke State College. And so there were monumental changes taking place in North Carolina in higher education. And if, in fact, uh, I came in 71 and 72 is when UNC, now called UNCP, joined the UNC system. And that was a major change for UNCP and all the other uh, institutions of higher education that came under the old State Board of Higher Education for all 16 public universities to be under one system called the University of North Carolina. So we were seeing a lot of changes at that point in time. I would say specifically about UNCP uh, at that time, although it didn't possess that name, uh, the size of the campus, of course, was much different as you've already indicated to some extent. I do not have the figures in front of me, but I think actually in the early 70s that we were like 15 to 1600 students and did not have master's degree programs. But we were working on our enrollment and got an enrollment by mid-70s up to about 2000, and of course it continued to grow. And of course, the advent of master's degree programs made a big difference too in the clientele uh, that we had on campus and the students that we served. I would say the big thing that stood out in my mind when I first came, I came from a larger university as an undergraduate and master's student, a much larger university, and it was very impersonal. And when I came to a campus, I, I couldn't help but reflect that I thought higher education was supposed to be impersonal. And it was so great to be on a campus where it was very personal, that students got a lot of individual attention, classes, class sizes were not all that great, but individual attention, I think, has been a hallmark of UNCP from the very beginning to the present day. And I think it's one of the things that sets us apart. Now, of course, through the years, the big change has been technology, and we'll talk perhaps more about that as we move along. But There's I, something nice about working and going to school at a place where everybody knows your name. It make, makes a big difference, makes a big difference. I came here yeah. in 1975, and I think the enrollment was about 1,600. Uh, that would be about right. But uh, a lot of the buildings that we had now weren't here. The art department was in the top of Moore Hall, uh, we were on the top floor, and home economics and music were on the bottom floors. We moved the art department twice, had major renovations, and now I think it's probably one of the, the better art departments in the state uh, because of the faculty there. And the improvement in equipment and funding, and I think what really, in my opinion, helped the university the most is when we did the name change. And I know the community were pro and con for, and Adolph Dial then was chair of the Indian Studies Department, 
finally advocated for the name change and it happened. And after that happened, the enrollment really started to build up. But there was a time in the art department when it was almost empty. It was scary. We thought we were going to lose our jobs. But after that happened, everything built right back up. Sarah, when did you get here? I got here in the fall of 1987. And uh, I think there were something like 2,300, 2,400 students on campus at that time. Uh, it was still very small. Uh, I think one of the slogans at that time is PSU, where learning gets personal. And it was still small enough that you did feel that you knew everybody on campus. And that's one of the things, uh, one of the changes that I'm not really in love with over the years is now I don't feel like I know everybody on campus. It's like uh, what is now facilities used to be physical plant. And I knew everybody in physical plant, and I could pick up the phone. By the time I got here, faculty did have phones in their offices. We didn't have computers yet, but we had phones. Uh, and I could just pick up the phone and call somebody if I needed something fixed, and they would come and fix it for me. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it was very intimate and very personal. And uh, when I got here, the what is now the Dial Building was Classroom Building North. And that was, at that time, the northernmost building on the campus. Now and, it's in the and, middle of campus. And now it's in the middle of campus. Everything beyond Classroom Building North was trees. Mm -hmm. uh, and so now there are buildings, but I kind of miss some of the trees. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, the, um, the thing that I found about this place, and that still is true to the most part, is it was very welcoming. Uh, and coming to North Carolina for me was a real culture shock because I came from northern New Jersey, the New York area, and uh, the style, the pace of everything was much slower here. Uh, I still walk much faster than, uh, you know, I have to pass people as I'm walking on Well, campus. you are a force of nature. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I learned in the, in the first couple of years that I had to tone myself down a little bit. Uh, I was, my first student evaluation said that, uh, you know, I was a really good teacher, but I was too abrupt. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so I, I, I realized that I had to uh, reflect more of myself as a human being and not just an expert on my, on my subjects, which would not have been appreciated in, uh, like the City University of New York was the institution I had taught in most recently before I got here. They didn't want all of the, you know, making nice. And if anybody had ever called me Miss Sarah, in either New York or New Jersey, you know. Uh, so there were a lot of cultural things I had to adjust to, and basically I found that uh, I really liked the slower pace of things here. It, it grows on you, doesn't it? Yeah, it yeah. does. Well, let's it talk, does. talk about some of those transitions. Think about the difference between when you were a student in college and when you came to UNCP to teach. And, and some of you had stops between there, but. What was the biggest transition from being a student back in the day to moving uh, to, to being in charge of all those students? Well, when I came here, uh, what Sarah said, the community was so small, I knew everyone. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed things like the faculty forum. It was just for faculty. And we had cookouts with our students, uh, hamburger and hot dogs, and then we fixed a big Thanksgiving dinner. Mm -hmm. And the class size was different. And I think when I first came here, I had a lot more Native American students than I had when I 
retired. The difference between the University of Oklahoma and here was vast, and I don't think I'm still used to be calling, called Mr. Ralph. But I realized there were so many, I later realized there were so many Oxendines and Locklears that if you were introduced as Mr. Locklear or Mr. Chavis, people might not know who you were. And right. that's where that tradition probably came from. But uh, I think the first computer I ever worked on was in Vietnam, and it was punch cards, and the computer was probably as big as this building. Mm. So that was a major thing. About two years before I retired, we started getting computers. Yeah, yeah and I was about, I still am, but I can do work them now, but as he knows, I have to call in once in a while. Charles, you, yeah. you were probably in the middle of the action in, in making sure all faculty got it. Absolutely, and in fact, that was a monumental development for every faculty member. It's one thing to get a computer for a department or for the IT center, but uh, to get one for each individual faculty member, just like the telephone. Uh, I wouldn't downplay the importance of getting a telephone. It made a statement, and getting your own personal computer uh, made also a statement. And I, uh, a couple of changes that have already been mentioned, but I want to just follow up on them because I think they're worthy of emphasizing that it really stands out at UNCP is the personal attention. Uh, I really, I don't see that now. You know, I visit a lot of campuses, but I believe we stand out in that category, uh, personal attention for students. And then, and then secondly, uh, the uh, way faculty members go out of their way to help students. You can call that personal attention or not, but I wanted to emphasize. I really do believe faculty members go out of their way to work with If the student will do their part, uh, I think that's a big, big difference for UNCP. So let me just follow up on that a minute. When you guys pushed out the initiative for everybody to get their own office computer, did you have a bunch of people saying, we're not going to need these, what are we doing that, well, you're spending I, money we don't yeah, need? I, I can I remember vividly because I used to be in the office next to the person I will not name who was then the advisor for the Pine Needle, uh, our student newspaper, because MassCom and English used to be in one big department, and so his office was next to mine. Uh, I had we had already had computer we had a computer lab. We were one of the first. Uh, departments on campus to get a computer lab, thanks to Pat Valenti, who was uh, on our faculty, and she got a grant, and we got 20 computers, uh, old IBM PCs with the dual uh, floppy disk, uh, yeah. uh, but uh, because we saw the, the importance of using that for teaching writing. Uh, mm -hmm. And so uh, we had access to computers probably before a lot of other departments on campus because we could just go into the student computer lab and get them. Uh, and when each of us got a computer in our office, the guy next in, in the office next to me never even turned it on. Mm -hmm. And what would drive me crazy is he had an old manual typewriter. And I would hear the clickety-clack of his typewriter through the wall, and I would bang, I wanted to bang on the wall and say, this is 1990 whatever it is, you should not be advising a student publication and using a typewriter. In fact, when I took over the yearbook in 1988 or 89, there was a typewriter on the desk mm -hmm. in the yearbook office, and that was the first thing that I said, 
this goes. We are not using typewriters <laughs> anymore. Uh, we're using computers. So, uh, but there was some resistance, and there were three or four other people in our department that um, had computers in their offices that were never used. But you know, most of us really embraced it. I All think. Right. Thank the powers to be that there's spell check and grammar check, yeah. and you can delete. <laughs> Move back and forth. Remember all the whiteout we had to use, mm -hmm. and I remember mimeographs. Yeah, and, and getting yeah, that stuff yeah. all over me. And we had a, we had a ditto machine, uh, uh -huh. and uh, I saw it as purple, not blue. Uh, okay. But uh, and so a lot of our handouts and things were. And uh, but the thing about that is there was a myth that you could get high on breathing ditto fluid, and so. The students would sometimes pick up and sniff the papers if they came right out of. The you mean there was actual research going on uh, as they looked at their worksheets <laughs> and syllabi? No. Did they have purple noses? No. <laughs> and let, let me go back to another point, uh, Jeff, that you already mentioned, and that's the diversity uh, matter. I, I think that's very important to emphasize for, that makes UNCP a special place. Uh, there's no. Uh, last time I checked, we were considered the most diverse university in the South. I don't know whether that's true. It's, we're either number one or, right. or number two. And of course, diversity meaning uh, African-American students, Native American students, white students, Hispanic students, and uh, Asian and other, other categories. And I, I really think that makes a big difference uh, for our campus. And when people come to our campus, they, they recognize that and our, our students get along so well and our faculty get along so well in the major scheme of things, that that's certainly something that stands out. I mentioned the personal attention, but also the diversity being, being so important. And I think it's the real world that people are going to be living in. And uh, so it's part of their education to be exposed and to be involved in that kind of environment. Well, and it makes for a richer learning uh, environment, whether you're teaching someone to make art or to write a proper essay or to be a, 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 a good high school principal, you need uh, that diverse experience because uh, you leave here, you have gone to school or worked with everybody that you'll possibly encounter wherever else you go from here. I think that's one of the important things about university life that might be going by the way with distant learning, which I think is important. But I think people have to consider what they want out of university life, and that's meeting people from all over the world, seeing all kinds of different opinions uh, that you get with diversity, which you won't by sitting in your home on your computer learning, which is important, but it's different. Right, and I think we also have uh, the, the percentage of people from just the local area has gotten smaller over the years. I, and yeah, I yeah. remember one of my first freshman composition classes, there were eight students in one section who all had gone to Purnell Sweat High School together. And they sat together at least for the first half of the semester. And uh, it was really hard to kind of uh, reinforce the idea that we're not in high school anymore and we have people from other parts of the world, but we did have, we had a Vietnamese student in that section, and we had a woman who was in her late 40s, early 50s, who was coming back to school, uh, and gradually, they kind of broke out of the, you know, we're still at Purnell right. Sweat, 
and start and i don't think that that would have happened as effectively if there hadn't been a more diverse group of students in the classroom for them so i think yes charles and ralph are both right that's a really important thing you're listening to 30 brave minutes a broadcast service of the college of arts and sciences at unc pembroke i'm jeff frederick and our panel includes ralph steeds sarah oswald and charles jenkins richard gay is our podcast engineer uh, how many of y'all carried around uh, pen, paper, and ink grade books? Oh, I all, did. Yeah, all of I us. Did. Yeah. When you, or did you get to the point in time where you started keeping those records in the computer, and how hard was that? I was gone before that happened to me. I, I started, but I always have a paper, a pen and ink grade book as a backup because there were times when... Uh, there was one semester where all my grades were in Blackboard, and Blackboard crashed. Mm. And uh, it took weeks for them to get mm. everything back again. And so that reminded me that you know we need to have some kind of backup. It was a transition, and every time we're like when we change from Blackboard to Canvas, it's a different way of doing things. Uh, and uh, but I always keep. A, a paper backup of my grades, just in case. And likewise for me, because I, even today, uh, after being retired for one year, uh, people call me for recommendations for jobs, yeah. and I can pull my paper robe that I wouldn't have access to otherwise, mm -hmm. and I can tell how well a person did in every assignment, you know, how well do they speak, how well do they write, how well do they perform on tests, what about their attendance to class, that kind of thing. And so it really helps me to be able to go back and look and, and find those individuals and see how well they did. And that, that happens almost every week. Somebody will call me about a recommendation uh, for the principalship, even superintendencies. And uh, so having something here other than being a, oh, he's a great person, he looked on there and, no, he made a C in English or whatever. <laughs> he made, I, of course, I would have access only to the classes sure. that I teach, yeah. but, but I find that very beneficial. Uh, so having it uh, on the computer is important, but having a backup, as Sarah said, is very important too. I always kept uh, paper files for everything. Uh, I wanted some kind of record that I had safe in my my file cabinet besides on the computer. This is Chancellor Robin Cummings, and I want to thank you for listening to 30 Brave Minutes. Our faculty and students provide expertise, energy, and passion driving our region forward. Our commitment to Southeastern North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at uncp.edu slash give. Thanks again for listening. Now back to more 30 Brave Minutes. Charles, you had, in all your various roles here, you had to sometimes step in and resolve maybe some conflicts or some disputes between maybe some more experienced faculty members who weren't excited about some of the transitions and some brand new faculty members who you were recruiting to come to work here in trying to empower to use all this stuff. How, how did you, in all your different roles, bridge those divides between people who had one way of thinking and people who had another? 
I'm a firm believer in face-to-face -face contact in those kind of situations. And so I would have the people in my office or I would go to their office. And I, I would take two approaches. Uh, I would get them together as a group, group being two people or three people or whatever. And then also I would get them together separately. And it's amazing when you get them together separately uh, how they will react as compared to when they have an audience or, or right. the persons in the room. So I would try to resolve the, the, the problem that way. And then after I'd collected my information, had all the facts and heard the viewpoints, then I'd try to get them back together again and, and hopefully leave with some degree of understanding and mutual ground, uh, sort of a, a, a common ground at least that they could work together. So I, I think in academic affairs, that's a natural, almost everyday, kind of not necessarily major problems, but some disagreements across the entire campus. Because you want, as Ralph said, you want different viewpoints and, and different kinds of things. You don't want everybody thinking just alike. So that, that's the approach that I always took. And Ralph, what, what changed for you in terms of how you taught printmaking um, from the first class you ever had at UNCP to one of your last, what changed in terms of the techniques? What changed in terms of the ways in which you inspired students to pursue their own art? Well, first and foremost is probably the ability to get uh, contemporary equipment and supplies. The money increased as enrollment goes. We were able to get new presses and things. I've gone to a lot of workshops where I kept up on my field. I studied tamarind. Uh, workshops, which is probably the premier litho uh, facility in the world, and was able to bring that information back into class. Uh, I think the professor is really well grounded in their field that they can bring that. And I had a tendency to teach the way I was taught, and I had good teachers. Mm -hmm. Sarah, the first yearbook that you produced here at UNCP, mm -hmm. or what wasn't even UNCP it wasn't, yet? It was PSU, um, yeah. What, what, what's different about the process, the equipment, the machinery? Absolutely everything. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, the thing is, I, it, it's been about four or five generations of technology I've been through in the 30 now yearbooks mm -hmm. that I produce. Wow. Uh, and so, uh, and actually, uh, until recently, I used to go every year to a uh, national conference of high school journalism students that's held at Columbia University in New York. And uh, one of the presentations that I gave several years ago was, uh, here's the way we used to do it, and here's how we do it now. And the, the high school students were blown away by the fact that even though the text was submitted on, on floppy disk, we had to draw all of the layouts and draw boxes and put labels on physical pictures and put crop marks on them and everything had to be bundled up and put in envelopes and physically mm -hmm. mailed in. And that was the way we did it for several years. And then gradually more and more things became digital. So last year's yearbook was done entirely online and uh, all we have to do is go on to the site and uh, make sure that everything is there virtually. Hardly anything is physical now. And we just push send and yeah. uh, it gets submitted to the printing plant. And um, there are, obviously, there are a lot of good things about that. I kind of miss, though, uh, print photography that was on paper. I could teach students things 
about photography and light and so forth working in the dark room and working with physical prints that i can't any any more teach as effectively when they're just looking at images up on a screen it doesn't make any sense anymore to to use dark room because of the time and everything but uh there are things that get lost as well as uh, as things we we used to have a dark room but it just became obsolete with digital photography so in the midst of a lot of positive trends about convenience and efficiency there are is a few things that you miss by moving from some of the old way yeah so because some students really are hands-on learners and if they have physical objects to manipulate and work with they will learn and retain that better than just by looking at a computer screen talk about some of the positive trends that you see in higher education in general what what would make it easier to be a student today what would make it easier to be a faculty member today than back when you started well, let me emphasize one that was there when I started as a, as a faculty member and as a student, uh, but a greater emphasis on the cost of higher education. I think that's one of the most important trends. There's a recognition now across the country and in North Carolina uh, that we, we must be concerned about the cost of higher education and we must do something about it, and I think that has taken place. And, of course, a good example of that, a great example for UNCP is the NC Plumbers that we have now. So I, I think that is a very positive thing because the cost factor, there was no financial aid, of course, when I was going to, to school as a student. And there were just a few scholarships, very few uh, scholarships. And, but the costs were not that bad. But costs have risen so much through the years that it's just hard to believe that students develop some of the debt that they have. And so doing something about that is a, a great trend, I think. I don't think I could have gone to university if things were expensive as they are now. Uh, the University of Oklahoma, I only got acquired one grant and it was just for one semester of tuition. Uh, it was on the GI Bill, but there was a catch-22. You had to be enrolled to get the GI Bill, but you had to have the GI Bill to pay your tuition. So I had to take the loan. But I think the cost of going to university now is really puts a lot of people out of the run. Sarah, what about you? Well, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of uh, some of the things that um, are easier now uh, or, or improved in the field of English and literature, the expansion of the canon to include not just uh, the, the kinds of texts that were taught when, uh, when I was an undergraduate, it was all white men you know, virtually. Uh, and now I think students are much more engaged if there's a, a much more diverse range of texts uh, by people who are from their cultures or their ancestries, things that they can relate to. So that's one positive thing. Another positive thing is just the use of technology in teaching writing. When I was a, an undergraduate, I had to write all my papers on a typewriter. And if I made a few mistakes, there was whiteout. If I made many mistakes, I would have to type Do the over. whole thing over. And uh, one of the things we really emphasize in the teaching of writing is the, the importance of revision. And it is so much easier to revise now uh, than it was. Not that students will always do it as often as they should, but um, you know, so that's, that's another positive thing. 
Sarah, do you remember the five carbon copies? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I remember uh, about uh, typing a paper, I think in high school or so, that was so hard is that you had to have footnotes. I was like, how do I find, where's the superscript? Where's yeah. the tiny thing? And I was and, like, ah. By the time you got to the bottom, the paper would start to slide. I, a lot of yeah, my absolutely. footnotes were like crooked at the bottom <laughs> because yeah. the paper was sliding out of the typewriter. Well, yeah. let's uh, wind down here a little bit. Tell us a favorite story about academic life from that people might not necessarily uh, know that is a part of who you are and what you contributed at UNC Pembroke. Well, uh, I actually have two, uh, but they'll be brief. Uh, one is more general. I, for several summers, participated in a summer bridge program here uh, where we brought in students who hadn't quite met the criteria to come to UNCP, but if they successfully completed the program, they would be admitted. And uh, for the first year, I was a classroom teacher, and after that, I managed the, uh, the, the, the writing lab with, a lot, with the help from a lot of really good student, UNCP students who worked as peer tutors. And so one of the things that really, really got me for four or five successive years was seeing some of those students walk across the stage mm -hmm. and get their diploma. And I really felt like I was a major part of that. Uh, one other thing is, years ago in a general ed literature course that I taught, I had a student who sat in the back, said nothing in class, but um, I would assign writings periodically every two or three classes, and I would get these things from her, and she had such wonderful insights, uh, and so I told her to come to my office, this is even before email, and I said, you do nothing in class, but you're writing this. I said, you need to be an English major. You know, she was a criminal justice major, and uh, she was not doing well in her criminal justice classes. She said, my parents insist that I have to major in something practical. I really want to be an English major, but uh, they won't let me. Uh, and so uh, I kind of worked on her for the rest of the semester, and then she took another course with a colleague who were, and by the, by. Two semesters later, we um, convinced her that she needed to be an English major. She graduated. She went to Western Carolina. She got her master's degree in English, and she is still working in the field. And That's so, great. you know, uh, and maybe that wouldn't have happened if I, you know, hadn't begun that interve intervention with her. I think uh, some of the fun things we did, uh, we took students on field trips. And we used to go to Franklin, North Carolina and mine precious stones. And Paul Van Zant taught a jewelry class then and we'd bring them back and they would cut the stones and make jewelry out of it. Mm -hmm. And then there were museum visits that we would go to DC and also we used to combine with the music department and take field trips to what the Kennedy Center, things like that I really enjoyed and I think the students learned a lot. And I think, you know, from my perspective as dean, that's one of the things that we still value. How do you create a transformative student experience where you ask somebody, what did you get to do in college that you'll never forget? And some of them might have said, well, I got to take this trip, or I got to do mm -hmm. this internship, or I got to present this uh, research. Um, those are still time-tested values for us today. Charles? What stands out in my mind is the opportunity to help students and to help faculty members when they 
had a real problem. And, and a, there's a couple examples that I would give. For the last 15 years, I've been teaching master's students who want to become school administrators. Had a student was within two courses of graduating, and decide, I got word that he decided he was going to drop out of the program. He was a guidance counselor in one of the schools uh, in this county, uh, Robinson County. Uh, I got word he was going to drop out of the program, and, I, and he had a lot of potential. And uh, so I, I decided I would give him a call. Well, first obstacle I ran into, I had his phone number at home and at school, but he was on vacation. This was summertime in the mountains in North Carolina. So I had to do a little detective work to get his cell phone. <laughs> Back then, people weren't so willing to give you the That's cell right. phone. Uh, so I got his cell phone number, and I gave him a call, and he was shocked that somebody would call him when he's on his way in a good way, uh, reach out to him and talk to him. And initially, he was going to drop out. He said, well, not but we must have talked 30 minutes, and by the end of the 30 minutes, he promised me he would come back and at least finish the program. I, I assured him he didn't need necessarily to be a school administrator, but, but he needed to finish his master's degree. So today, since then, he's been an assistant principal, a principal of a large high school for like five years, and now he's a superintendent, assistant, assistant superintendent of one of the school systems in southeastern North Carolina. Another student the same way, uh, I got word that he was going to drop out of the program, outstanding student too, so I called him. He had a different kind of problem, and we talked about that, and he had had some conflict with some folks, and so we talked through that and got him to come back, and since then, he's been a principal of three large high schools, two in North Carolina, one in Georgia, and today he's superintendent of schools in Vermont. Wow. And uh, so those are the kinds of things that you feel real good about. No matter what decade you're in a classroom or at a university, it's the personal stories of the connection you have directly with your peers, with your colleagues, with your students that uh, make a life in higher ed um, a really, really rich life. What a treat to hear from Charles and Ralph and Sarah today. Join us next time for 30 Brave Minutes. Today's podcast was edited by Richard Gay and transcribed by Janet Gentis. Theme music created by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves! Good job, everybody!